Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. It, it helps me feel fulfilled when we have people on there and we're teaching the greater good of, you know, inclusion because accessibility is inclusion too, right? We, where would we be mm -hmm. without our disabled, um, disabled content consumers or disabled developers? In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This is Vanessa Bunn, a self-taught developer and an open source contributor at hack for la And we have a special guest today for this episode. We have Amy June Heinlein. She's a Drupal core mentor and a co-lead of Accessibility Talks. Uh, welcome, Amy June, to the episode. Hi there. It's nice to be here. Um, I wanted to maybe uh, talk a little bit about who I am to lend credibility of why I'm talking about this subject. So I've been a, a Drupal core mentor now for um, five years, which means that I help onboard people to contribute to the open source project for Drupal. Um, I'm a hospice nurse by trade. So I do a lot of work in the accessibility realm because um, I understand how some people have a hard time accessing basic information, um, either because, you know, they have uh, some disability or they're using uh, uh, user agents and assistive technology. Um, but I find myself uniquely positioned to help individuals contribute more to their specific open source because I focus on lowering the barriers to entry with the tools and then also being inclusive of everyone's roles and um, skill set. Mm -hmm. So the main topic you'll be talking about today is just discussing how open source can elevate careers on those who have been historically marginalized. And also you said you want to speak about mentoring as well. Yeah, because um, one of the tools to success of contributing to open source is having um, someone helping you, you know, a mentor to help guide you along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to start talking about um, how you got into open source? Sure. Um, I, I'm, like I said, I'm a nurse by trade and um, there were certain things going on in nursing that made it more difficult as time went on. You know, I've been doing it for a long time, became kind of jaded. I've been in hospice nursing for a long time and there's a lot of emotional toll that comes with hospice nursing. And I had been doing some content entry on a, on a website and it was a, a content management system of Drupal. And um, I wanted all these changes. And my partner at the time was like, well, why don't you learn Drupal? You know, you're interested in how this tech works. You know, why don't you do that? And so I went to a, my first exposure was, you know, working in the admin content entry side, but I went to a, a Drupal camp, Stanford camp, and the people were amazing. And they were so inviting that that jump-started my career in tech was I want to be with these people. These people resonate with me. And so from there, I took like a boot camp and I learned Drupal and I went through all of the ways. Um, uh, so that's sort of how I first started with tech. And then Drupal is open source. So I understood the value of open source from the beginning. And for those people who might not know what open source is, open source means that the code is free. 
and that's two things. The code is free, meaning there's no cost. So it helps with, you know, nonprofits and higher ed, you know, keeps the cost down, but it's also free in that you can see the code and you can make changes to the code. And so it's free that there's no cost. And then there's the liberty behind being able to see the code. Mm -hmm. So I really relate to your background because I was a clinical lab scientist in hospitals and I felt like I there was a lot of administrative burden. Uh, a lot of things are done manually. So I started learning um, how to code to see if I can make things more automated. And through that discovery, I learned um, I learned to love how to code, and that's where I, it got me to where I am today. And I'm also contributing at Hack for LA, which is um, a civic organization that creates free projects for the city of LA. So I really um, relate to your story, and I can't wait to hear more about um, where you would be taking this conversation. Um, so... What were some of the challenges that you faced early on when you started? Well, the number one challenge I faced early on was, you know, I took these classes and, you know, my roots are in Drupal. And so Drupal's a lot of these examples here. I took some classes in Drupal and at the end of this, you know, 12 week immersive program and taking an internship, I'm like, hmm, I don't think code is for me. I just invested a lot of time and a lot of brain power, you know, months and months of stuff to realize that code wasn't for me. But I had a set of mentors that said, well, you don't have to be a coder. You can be a project manager. You can do this. You can do that, you know. And so that definitely was a challenge early on was having this immense imposter syndrome, being in a world of coders and developers and designers and not having that skill set I thought was important not realizing that, you know, there's more skill sets involved. And then, you know, there's always the the gatekeeping that happens in tech, you know, um, when you're not a coder. One of the biggest challenges I had when I first started contributing was the documentation wasn't written for non-coders, you know, and so so that was very challenging, realizing that People didn't mean to, you know, put up these gates and these knowledge blocks, but they did because they forgot the experience of someone who's not a coder and someone who's new to coding. And so um, that sort of prompted me wanting to mentor and improve documentation. All of those like things, those challenges I faced helped me sort of build my career, which was nice. Mm -hmm. And and how did that lead to accessibility talks? Okay, so that's a little tangential, but one of the one of the consultancies I worked for, one of the um, packages we gave people was accessibility, and accessibility was important to us. Accessibility means that everyone can access your digital goods. It means that people can choose whatever technology they want to get to your PDF, or you know, read your website, or download something on their phone. And being a nurse and having to read emails to people, I understood that that was kind of a weird thing to do. There's this lack of privacy. So when I first got into tech and had this, this program with this consultancy where I learned that you could make websites and digital assets accessible, but you didn't, that just made no sense to me. So I'm like, oh, there's my niche. You know, I have the nursing background. 
I want everyone to be, there's no reason why I should be reading an email to someone. There's no reason why someone with Parkinson's can't do their phone, you know? And so um, I met a friend, a colleague who uh, was part of accessibility talks and um, a little bit after uh, she joined the consultancy, we did it together with another woman and we started this online meetup and we've been doing it since 2017. So way before the pandemic, way before it was cool to do, you know, online meetups, but we meet once a month and we invite people on to talk about it. Uh, accessibility. It started first with like accessibility in Drupal, but now we've become agnostic and we just have these, you know, once a month meetups where we talk about accessibility in general. It, it helps me feel fulfilled when we have people on there and we're teaching the greater good of, you know, inclusion because accessibility is inclusion too, right? We, where would we be mm -hmm. without our disabled, um, disabled content consumers or disabled developers? Mm, I see. Oh, I thought, um, Accessibility Talks was like part of open source. So Accessibility Talks is a meetup? It's a meetup, but we you, we talk a lot about open source technologies. So, mm, okay. and accessibility is kind of open source. You know, if you think about it, or not open source, but open culture and open practice, mm -hmm. because you want everyone to be included. And so it's one of those, open source has many facets. You know, you've got the open practice, open culture, and open library kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it falls within those tangential realms. Mm -hmm. So with that involvement, um, in accessibility and open source, how has that helped you so far? And what have you uh, been mainly teaching everyone about accessibility and open source? My niche in open source when it comes to accessibility is I do a lot of um, beginner workshops, a lot of beginner presentations. I have the privilege of being able to travel to camps and give talks, you know, I've been sponsored through my employers or, you know, I just have that economic privilege of being able to travel <clears throat> and the, the privilege of time too. So I've given talks at all sorts of different open source spaces, whether it be like the Linux Foundation or WordPress events or Drupal events, or, you know, just wider open source events, but I'll give talks on, you know, accessible social media for our content folks, you know, accessible uh, content for websites. Um, accessible media players. I've given workshops on how to write effective alt text. You know, alternative text is when you can't see the image visually, but there's a mechanism for a screen reader to read that and really giving them the same experience as a visual person. You know, so I give workshops on um, on uh, writing accessible uh, alternative text. And then I give lots of beginner talks too, of what is accessibility? What are the five things you can do to your website right now to make them more accessible? I'll do a live audit and show people how to manually test things. You know, lots of, lots of eye-opening sort of talks where people walk away with like, oh, I have this pragmatic thing I can do to make my website or asset um, more accessible. And that's oh, really nice. important in open source because I work on the Drupal project in the back end, like making the interface, the, the the people who build the tools, that needs to be accessible too. Sometimes people don't think about that. They think about accessibility on the front end where we're looking at the website. But what about those people who are building the tools? So that's important too. Mm -hmm. And are these talks that you've that you shared, are they available online or uh, as like recorded um, talks? Most of them are recorded. Um, like you could, I have a GitHub repository that I can share, like where I have links to all the different talks I've given mm -hmm. over the last few years. Um, but 
a quick search of like YouTube video and my name and accessibility oh. or whatever topic will probably come up, <laughs> come up with a talk. Great. That sounds good because some of the things you mentioned, I'm like, oh, I got to know what the five things are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, let's not get into that. Um, so what have you seen in historically marginalized people treated differently by the industry so far? So, okay, I've been pretty privileged. I talk about that a lot. I want everyone to know that like coming into Drupal and coming into WordPress, these are pretty, and the accessibility community, these are pretty inclusive spaces to begin with. Yes. They need work, but they're pretty, pretty good about, you know, having a good code of conduct, having inclusive meetups, you know, things like that. Um, but I do see some of the challenges when it comes to open source contributions for excluded communities, because time is a privilege. You need the time. If your employer doesn't sponsor you, you need the time to give back to open source. And then you also have, you know, um, is it part of your job? That's a privilege too. You know, some jobs have it built in where, you know, you take every other Friday off to work on open source. But if you're in a socioeconomic pattern where you don't make a lot of money and maybe you have a second job, that comes down to that time privilege as well. Um, and then, you know, historically disabled people, you know, um, uh, don't have the same resources and time either, you know, and so a lot of it does have to come come down to to time. Once people are in open source, it's a lot easier, but getting into it and becoming an established, you know, repeat contributor, that's where the difficulty comes in. Mm -hmm. And even like me, I'm not that I'm not like disabled or anything, but even I had challenges in trying to find an open source project to contribute to, or even like popular ones, because there's a lack of 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 uh, documentation and even the documentation is really hard to read and like I have to read everything to, to figure out like how to contribute and when I did join the community like through discord or some kind of chat and I send like a message how do I start like no one responds to it because it's like probably a big task for someone to introduce me into like how to get started. So were you able to help someone in that historically marginalized space? Um, so I'm personally into contributing in an open source project. Sure. My history in Drupal is mostly helping people contribute back. You know, I'm a Drupal core mentor, but when I first started, you know, not being a coder, I went to contribution days and there's this huge barrier to entry that you had to have like a local working environment on your machine to write a patch. I'm like, what's a patch? What's get, you know? So here I am, this non-coder coming into these contribution days, leaving very upset that I want to be part of the community. I want to give back. I want to like have some voice in this. And I was at a smaller regional event and I was saying this to one of the at the time, Drupal core mentors. And she's like, well, why don't you just teach the class from your perspective? Like, like you don't know the history of get, but you don't need to do that. So why don't you teach people how to write a patch? Why don't you 
teach people, you know, because documentation is a huge barrier because there's steps missing that's not all the way there. It's confusing. So have people contribute to documentation. They're the perfect people to contribute because they don't know what's going on. So they will find every step that's wrong. And so I started teaching first-time contributor workshops at the local level from the eyes of a non-coder. So I redid the contribution workshop and we talked about, you know, what it's like to be a coder and give back. What's it like to be a marketing person and give back? And so some of these roles have more historically excluded folks in those roles. And so you're able to help more marginalized folks because they have those roles, you know? So, so what can you do as a marketer um, uh, to give back to Drupal? What can you do as a content strategy person to help the WordPress project? So really kind of looking at people's skills and passion levels helps with that excluded community because everyone has a skill set and everyone has a passion level. So just making sure you connect those dots and then having a support system for them. You know, if you have a contribution day, then you also need to have a mentoring or a buddy system so people can carry on and work with that continued contributions. And I think that's what's important with some folks is inviting them to the conversation, inviting them to, to help contribute to a project, but then also giving the resources to be successful later on. So that comes with the mentoring and the introducing people to Discord. Because when someone just asks in Discord, if there's no knowledge, it might get ignored. But if you've introduced people, that will help with that, you know, that uh, that networking. Yeah, that made me think about um, my experience at hack for la they actually made it pretty accessible in contributing to their open source. And that made me think like, wow, actually they made it very easy for new um, new coders to contribute because they, they have everyone start like um, first their orientation and then they start following like a, a list of steps on like how to contribute and their resource or their their uh, documentation is very spelled out, like very elementary, like here's what you need to do, here's what you need to uh, download, and here's here's what you need to do next. Like it's very easy until, and then it gets to the point where you learn how to use Git and how to like add and do PRs. So that was very, like very nice. And that's how I got into the open source contributing. I first tried to get into it by Googling like open source projects. And then I got to this website where it gave me all the lists of sources or first first issues I can try. But when I go for those first issues, I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me. It feels very complicated. So how were you able to um, start mentoring people with their first um, open source issue. Okay. So that is something, you know, I moved from, you know, being mentored to being a mentor and then being a core mentor, you know? And so what I do in the Drupal project is I help build like the first time contributor workshops. We help plan contribution events around flags, like, you know, Drupal cons or larger regional events. And one of the things that we do is we mentor the mentor. So we have mentor orientations where we get mentors. It's like, hey, do you want to be a mentor? We're having a mentor orientation. So we build this network of mentors, right? And then after we have a group of mentors, the next day, we'll do issue queue triage. 
So we'll go through the Drupal issue queue and we'll look and we'll tag novice or first time contributors, but then we make sure that there's steps to replicate that we tag it that a designer can do this. A content person can do this, but we set an issue up for success and that way that you know what contribution days usually at the end of the week. A new contributor comes into contribution day, they take the workshop, they look at the different ways they can contribute, they're matched with a mentor, and then we have these issues pre-selected and tagged that are filterable by their skills or passions or what they do, and hopefully we've done triage enough where they can understand exactly what to do step by step. So that's how we really help people feel successful with their first time contribution. And then hopefully, you know, they've met, they, they're at the mentoring table and they leave with a mentor or they leave with a group of people that they have some camaraderie with. So they have a support system. So maybe they didn't get that patch done or they didn't get the logo created during the contribution day. They can do that next week because they've introduced themselves on Slack to each other. You know, they've, they've linked in each other. You know, it's really about that networking, but really, you know, taking the time to, to mentor the mentors, do the issue queue triage, and then sit with someone in small groups and really that's where that success comes from making sure that you give them the tools to feel successful not just this empty room with a book of documentation you really got to meet people at their at their level so it sounds like there are some ways that the industry can do better um and that the organization themselves have to like realize that their documentations are not easy for a new open source contributor. So besides um, finding mentors or having a mentor for mentors, what are some other ways that, that we can lower the barrier to entry in okay. contributing? So this is a, I don't know if I wanna say it's a burden on the contributor, but um, I tell folks that you need to be a little bit vulnerable. You know, um, when you're in an issue for the first time, may, maybe being vulnerable and saying, this is my first time contributing. This is my first time writing a patch. This is my first time I'm at this event. Because then you've made this comment and people are aware that you're a first time contributor. And most people want you to succeed. And so that vulnerability of saying that this is the first time I've done something or I've seen someone do it and now I'm trying it again for the first time, that vulnerability will bring you more help you know, introducing yourself in the Slack channel, like um, Drupal has a, like a Slack channel with lots of different channels of what they're working on. Say your interest is, you know, like um, accessibility, because we've, that's been a trend in this, in this conversation. You join the accessibility channel and you introduce yourself and you're like, I would love to contribute. Here are my skill sets. What can I do? But it's part of that being vulnerable and introducing yourself. And because, you're not always going to be invited. Sometimes you have to walk into the party yourself. You know, it's easy when there's contribution days and there's like this big group of people and that's the goal for the day. But if you're not at an event or a hackathon, where do you start? And starting at that, introducing yourself in the forum with your skill set. Um, and hopefully if that project has people in, wouldn't it be an ideal world if every project had like a welcoming committee? Every time someone new came to a forum, they pointed you to good documentation. They told you a good channel to contribute. We don't have that, but that's sort of what, how I've seen it work in the past is, you know, just that, you know, you're more successful when you have help. And sometimes you have to ask for that help. Mm -hmm. 
And if you're like a regular open source contributor, I bet you'd have to take the initiative to even start a welcome program or a mm -hmm. mentorship program. Well, and how how would you even start that if you want to change the open source community within like the one you're contributing? Sure, that's a that's a tricky one because when I came into Drupal, there was already a mentor program. You know, it's just we've iterated on it in the seven years I've been a part of it. You know, to help uh, with different things, but every project has different goals and it's not all just code right you know what i mean and so as we talk about our open source projects you know we talk about how do we bring more contributors in well that's through marketing you know so you have to have a marketing person so actively seeking someone in your community that can market and ask people to contribute you know and and having documentation you know um so that is not an easy answer, you know, but borrowing from other open source communities style of mentoring is always nice. You know, there's a few communities out there that have like mentoring playbooks, you know, um, contribution days and hackathons are where that first starts. You'll see those natural leaders who will go and help people. And those are the people that you sort of recruit for your mentoring projects, right? The people who are like, oh, let me put this down and show you how to install Git on your machine. Oh, okay, let me show you how to use Figma. You know what I mean? So you see these natural leaders come up and asking them to mentor is that first step. And how how can people get involved in open source projects like besides just googling or finding that open source projects list okay so um say you're a designer um and i'm just going to use random examples and none of these companies endorse me okay so you're a designer and you use blender or you use gimp as a tool well you use that tool for free. So you depend on open source. So open source sort of depends on you. So I think that's a first step is like, what is the tool that you use? What is the tool that you want to use, but there's something just drastically wrong with it, or you want a feature request. And so that's where I would start is look at your project page, like your Blender page or your GIMP page. And at the bottom, there'll be a place of like, how to get involved or their GitHub repository, you know? So that's matching your skill set and passion with the project that you want to become involved with. Because I found like you, those lists of here's all the places you can start, but mm -hmm. do I want to work on that project? Is it going to be boring? So I really recommend, you know, thinking about what you use currently, what you would like to use, or maybe like you like this tool a lot, but it's buggy. So those are the projects I would contribute to first. And again, it's that introducing yourself, finding out, you know, who the maintainers are, you know, if you have the privilege of going to a local, like Linux event or open source event and going to their booth and introducing yourself doing a hackathon, you know, um, sometimes hackathons are good, even though like they're not necessarily your passion project, but you learn the skills, you learn how to make a patch, you learn how to create an issue, you learn how to do a merge requests and so so sometimes those local hackathons are good just for that skill based stuff that you can take to your passion project. And for people who are trying to break into the tech industry, um, it seems like open source would be one way to get experience. Correct. Very true. Because when we work on an open source project, 
it emulates kind of the workflow that we do at consultancies and agencies. You know, you report bugs, you're a project manager and you write out tickets, um, you're working with others, you're moving through ticket flows, you're either waterfalling or agiling, you know, um, you're looking at code, you're reviewing code, you're setting up local environments, you're asking questions. And so that development workflow in GitHub or GitLab or however you're using it really emulates that consultancy or, or agency work um, for open source. So it, it parallels real work, you know, it proves that you can work on a team, that you can take constructive criticism, that you can, you know, have, have collaborations and things like that. And so the more you do that too, the more you open up code, say you're not a coder, but you can review code. The more you review the code, the more you see it and the more you learn. So the more steps you get involved with, the more you'll learn code. Because I say I'm not a coder, but I do review issues. So every time I review an issue, I learn a little bit about a coding standard. You know, it just sort of happens if you're interested, you know? Yeah. And what other advice would you give to someone who is looking to enter into tech, especially if they're historically marginalized? So tech is a hard place to break into especially right now there's a lot of layoffs there's a economy that you know for whatever reason is shrinking and it's really hard to break into tech right now for anybody and for those who are from marginalized communities being really creative about about your contributions being really creative about taking some of those non-tech jobs, soft skills and wording them in a way that apply to tech, you know, it's about that creativity. You know, you might not have ever been a project manager at a tech company, but you've maybe managed something at your church. You know, you run the fall coat drive every year. So really taking that volunteer experience or the experience, that non-tech experience and discovering how to talk about it in a way that relates to tech is really helpful. Um, but again, you know, uh, building up your open source profile on GitHub and GitLab, because, you know, we're anonymous on those unless we, you know, have like, my name is Volkswagen Chick. And so people can make the assumption that I'm a woman, you know, but, you know, building up those get lab points and building up, you know, the credibility of, you know, like say you work on um, Zulip, which is a communication tool like Slack. And every time there's a release, there's your name because you helped with that project, you know? And so really build it, you can build up your resume by using your volunteer work, you know? Um, you know, my drupal.org profile shows that I like helped accessibility on Drupal 9. Well, that's a skill that I did not learn at a tech shop. That's a skill I learned in open source. So being creative with your contributions, you know, taking initiative and being the leader, you know, making sure that you are creative with that skill set that you present to people. Because I'm a nurse. Um, I came from yeah. nursing, you know what I mean? And so I had to be really creative with, with my background, right? Like my soft skills and how did I solve problems and how did I manipulate content, you know, all of those things. So you just kind of have to, it takes time to be creative about it, but sitting down and maybe brainstorming with a friend or colleague and seeing where that fits into tech um, really does help. Yeah, that made me curious about what you started with. You said you were the hospice nurse and then you broke into tech. Can you tell me a little bit about how you broke into tech with your background? Sure. Um, so 
I took some coding classes and they provided me an internship and I worked at um, an agency doing support work where it was clients who were primarily um, nonprofit. So they didn't have a lot of money to spend And the, the company I worked for was mission driven, which was really nice. So they gave me the intern to these companies because it might take longer but it'll cost you less because the intern's doing it. So I did a lot of support work, you know, like feature requests or, you know, updating websites and things like that. And then um, just through meeting people at camps, I, I'm a big advocate of networking. It's a lot about who you know. Um, I came into another agency that said, you know, you're a people person, you know, I, I can see that you don't like doing what you're doing. How would you like to work on a community project for us. And so I have, was very blessed that this company took me on and they paid me to contribute to Drupal. And then later on down the road, um, I moved to another company that paid me not only to give back to Drupal, but to go to conferences and teach things, teach first-time contributor workshops. And so I've had a very unique career that started with development and realizing that wasn't for me, but I had that support system and people that knew me that helped me find that niche. And that niche is really me empowering other people to give back. That's my passion in tech is teaching other people how to do X, Y, and Z, whether it be accessibility or installing Git or learning how to do a merge request. That's where, that's what, when I tell people to use your passion, that's how I use my passion in tech. Mm, but it was hard. amazing. <laughs> yeah. How did you, how did you network? Um, Cause it sounds like you talked to a lot of people and people found out like what you like and what you don't like and got you into opportunities that you happen to like. Right. So I live in the San Francisco Bay area. So we have like, we had user groups, um, you know, uh, word, word camps. We had Drupal camps. We had lots of Drupal camps just in my area. And then I'd go to bigger events and um, I'm just a people person. You know, I talk to a lot of people and not everyone does that. Not everyone has that extroverted side, you know, but, um, but that's networking in person is how I first got started. And then when the pandemic hit, it, I had to find creative ways to network online. And I struggled with that, but you know, that's, someone else can be reversed where they have an easier time networking online, you know, but most of it was going to events, introducing myself to people, understanding who ran initiatives. How can I help you? You know, you're busy. What can I do to help you? So um, I started helping volunteering at events, like at the registration desk, because I don't know anybody, but Hey, if I, if I'm at the registration desk and checking people in, I meet people as they come in. So later at the party, I'm like, oh, hey, remember me from the registration desk? Or I would moderate rooms and, you know what I mean? Lots of volunteering and then organizing. It led to organizing events. And then with organizing events, I would meet the speakers and the trainers and the sponsors. And so I'm already going to be at an event. So why not do as much as I can? And I know that's not for everybody, but that's how I networked and, and really met who I needed, not met who I needed to meet, but met the, the right people to find the value in what I have um, and be, you know, creative enough to see that my skill set can kind of fit into, into, into a couple of different things. It's interesting. Like I, I like networking too, but uh, you're, when you described how you network, like going to events, 
I tried something like that, like since the pandemic is over, um, a lot, there's a lot more in-person events. So I started volunteering at different conferences. And to be honest, I felt so exhausted. I met so many people and like, I feel like I need to take notes on who I talked to. And <laughs> so, so I, I admire how you did that. <laughs> so there is one thing I have to clarify on that. The smaller events were easier to start with because the intimacy, like some people go, oh, why am I going to go to like an 80 person or a 200 person event? Because you'll see someone once or twice, where if you go to those 5,000 people events, you might not see the same person again, mm -hmm. you know, so those starting off at that regional or meetup or, you know, local level and meeting people and getting a network there. And then when you go to the you know, larger regional or the state camp, then you already know people from there, which helps, you know what I mean? But yeah, I think if you're not extremely ex extroverted, that starting at the smaller events or starting with like one track, you know what I mean? Like, and just that repeat, the repeat business. And I always try to do it like where if I run an event, you know, I was there last year. So I'm going to make an attempt to meet one new person this event every day. Uh, I've organized this, this camp five times. So I need, I want to meet five new people every day at this event, you know, so I have these little goals that I make for myself oh, I <laughs> because see. I want That's everyone good. to feel included. I don't, you yeah. know, someone new, I'm like, Hey, I've never seen you before. My name's Amy June. Let me introduce you to who I'm standing with, you know? And so that, mm. that, that really helps too, is like having that networking buddy with you, with you. Yeah. I guess as an introvert, maybe the goal is to have one person per day or that week <laughs> and just connecting through LinkedIn to stay mm -hmm. in touch. Mm -hmm. And where are you going next? And what project are you working on? You know, and building genuine relationships, you know, it's not about that qu quantity, right? It's about sustaining those relationships in a meaningful way to keep moving forward. You know, when I talk about contributions, it's about like, you know, continued contributions and continued networking. You know, that's where, that's where the good stuff happens is the, is not with the one-offs. Those are great, but it's that, that building is where things happen. Mm -hmm. um, we're about like the 40, 40 minute mark. I'm just wondering, is there any other topics that I missed in bringing up or is there anything else you want to mention or talk about? Um, let's see. Um, I would like to maybe talk about how open source projects can be used to improve the tech industry as a whole. You know, like I mentioned before, I'm pretty privileged that I started out in open source. I didn't start off with a product. I started off in open source. And so I see the value of open source. And then, you know, I've worked for um, IBM and Red Hat where they model their open source. Uh, they model their, their product based on open source. So you start with an open source product and then it moves into a proprietary product. Well, that open source project is where people can get involved and start talking about the future of that pro project, right? So open source drives innovation because it's collaborative. Everyone can contribute to open source. So if companies have that model of starting out with open source before it becomes proprietary, people have a voice of how they use the product. And that's where I think when 
when I talk about people who um, come from excluded communities, their voices are perfect here because someone at a grassroots clinic is using patient software differently than someone working for Kaiser. So having them contribute at that open source level really helps with the inclusion of a product. You know, if more voices are in the setup and the, the features of a product, the better the product will be, the more accessible the product will be, um, and the more people can use it. And so really having that open source model, I think can, can really help the tech industry as a whole. And it makes it less scary for people. People kind of know that there's an open source thing out there. It also helps with you know, nonprofits and higher eds because it keeps the costs down. So instead of having to pay for a million dollar CMS, they can download WordPress or Drupal for free. Sure, they have to maintain it and update it and pay their developers, but they don't have that initial cost. And so for, for grassroots organizations, you know, who want to get their words across, open source is a great way, you know, because it, it, is, it, it is low cost and that lowers that economic barrier. That's that's amazing. Like I didn't think about about open source as a way to lower costs for any organization. So it makes me wonder, like, how can the tech industry um, embrace open source more for their own projects, or is there a, a way for them to be part of it um, with some kind of motivation? Well, the motivation can be that. Um, the collaboration part of it. The more people you have testing and QAing and building your product, the more dynamic your product is. If you're open to the collaboration, you know, because you might not think of like, oh, this person uses this software this way. I never even thought about that before. So it really opens up like um, the scope of what your project can do. And also there's the power of when you have an open source project, you have the ability to empower your contributors, you know? And so, you know, if you're at sort of corporate citizenship, right? If you have a paid for product, it's corporate citizenship to, to either have some of your employees help out in open source or, or have an open source product before the proprietary version. So it's that corporate citizenship. And I, I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but um, when we have more citizenship and we feel more citizenship, then we provide more citizenship. And that's open source is a great way to do to do that for companies. Mm, that's amazing. Thank you for like talking so much about open source. Like I've learned so much uh, that you can uh, contribute um, even as an entry level through maybe mentorship, good documentation and have accessibility involved in there too by um, creating channels and also just opening space for people to get involved in many different ways, um, even from historically marginalized spaces. So I, I learned so much about open source, like thanks, thanks to you. <laughs> Another thing I want to mention is, you know, if you're really looking to get into open source, go to where your open source projects are, you know, are those contributors on Mastodon? 
Are they on LinkedIn? You know, and follow some of those open source contributors, you know, the maintainers or follow them on Twitter, whatever social media you want. And But go to where they are. Because if you want to learn about accessibility or if you want to learn about, you know, JavaScript, having more people in your Java, in your in your LinkedIn timeline that are JavaScript experts or JavaScript contributors helps you see what they're doing and what they're working on. And so, you know, not only like, you know, introducing yourself, but going and meeting them where they are really helps. That's that's a great tip, especially like following them on Twitter or LinkedIn. So that's a great one. Um, I'm just wondering, um, where can people find you or learn more about like your background and to connect with you? Sure. Um, so I was a Volkswagen mechanic in a previous lifetime. And so that's why I go by Volkswagen chick, which is V O L K S W A G E N C H I C K. So I'm like Volkswagen chick on Mastodon and Volkswagen Chick on LinkedIn and Volkswagen Chick on Twitter. It's really easy to find me. I'm pretty public about everything. Um, and then Amy June, there are other Amy Junes, but it is a pretty unique name. So if you forget Volkswagen Chick, Amy June is a is a is a good way to do a search too. But LinkedIn is my favorite because I know it's not supposed to be a social media platform, but I love LinkedIn because you see people's celebrations. They're celebrating what articles they just just published. And that is my favorite place to go because it's like happy and just, uh, and, you know, depending on who you follow for open source, there's a lot of open source information on LinkedIn. Yeah. Is there one particular um, person you follow for open source that you'd like to recommend? Uh, no, not one particular uh, person. Um, I used to say to, to join, like subscribe to the RSS feed for opensource.com, but they're no longer supporting that. Um, so I think for me, it's a little bit more specific because I like Drupal and I like WordPress. So I'm following their benevolent dictators, you know what I mean? Mm. And so, um, uh, yeah, no one specific. It's mostly projects that I follow. Yeah. The OSI is a, is a good one, you know, depending on what you want to learn, you know, you can follow right. something this month and then follow something else next month. You know, you have permission to, to switch it up as you learn. And <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Follow like your, your individual interests mm -hmm. open source. And then okay. as you start to follow them, you'll see who who's in their network and who's replying to their posts and, you know, network with that person. And that's why LinkedIn is so great too, because you can, your network can get exponentially bigger as you become, you make one post and someone comments, well, you can, you can network with them then and you can ask them to connect, you know, so. Right, thank you. Um, do you have any final thoughts you want to share? Um, we covered a lot, but I think what I like to share at the end is just making sure that folks know that there is a place for every skill set. There's a place for every role and there's a place for every passion. So maybe you're not passionate about open source yet. You don't have a passion to follow. That's okay. But you're a developer, you know, so, um, or you're a designer. There's always logos that need to be made. If you're a copywriter, there's always marketing copy to be made. So it doesn't matter your skill set, what you do or your passions. There's always a place for everyone in open source. You don't have to be a coder. You don't ever have to write a patch. 
You don't ever have to do any of that to feel like you're part of the open source community. And that's what I, coders are fine too. We love coders, don't get me wrong, but there's so much more you can do in open source beyond the code that even just like me coming on here or going to a conference and sharing your information, sharing your knowledge is a great way to give back to open source because your perspective is uniquely different than someone else's. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Damie Jean, for sharing your wealth of knowledge about open source and accessibility. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vanessa. This was a this was a fun conversation. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.